This weekend, I read again <clears throat> the confession of the infamous Dr. Henry Jekyll from the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, short story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which, of course, you all uh, know the title and know the general idea of it. And it was fascinating, though, to read his confession because in the story, what happens is eventually the Mr. Hyde's part of his personality starts to dominate. And Dr. Jekyll had come up with a potion that allowed him to basically separate himself into two personalities. One was the usual man who was a mixture of good and evil. The other was Dr. Mr. Hyde, who was entirely evil. And a weird thing would happen when he would drink the potion, his body would physically change and become shorter and uglier and younger. And the doctor surmised this was because this part of his sin, his, his evil side, had not really been exercised. For the majority of his life, Dr. Jekyll had been a moral man, had done great things for people, had worked hard to suppress any kind of bad or evil urges. And then now he was in a spot where the Mr. Hyde would come out and had no bit of good and had really been unexercised. He was younger and began to indulge this. So what would happen is he would drink the potion, and then Mr. Hyde would come, and he'd drink it again, and he'd go back to Dr. Jekyll. And he said that his conscience was sort of solved by the fact that when he was the good one, or the somewhat good one, he would go do good deeds to even sometimes eradicate the things that Mr. Hyde had done the night before. And, but he still kept doing this. He was, he was drinking the potion and indulging in this other side. And the confession comes out because somehow there was something wrong in one of the ingredients, and he can no longer get that ingredient that made the, the potion actually work. So he was down to his last draft of it. He drank it and became the doctor again and wrote his confession out, knowing that pretty soon the evil would take over. And see, what had happened in the story is he had this habitual indulgence of drinking the potion and becoming Mr. Hyde and letting that run wild. And that became stronger and stronger until he no longer needed to drink the potion to be Mr. Hyde. He would go to bed as Dr. Jekyll and in the morning wake up shocked to find that he had transformed in the night to Mr. Hyde. And the sin had grown. Now, why is it that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, even if you've never read the story, is a household idea? Why is it that it is so famous? It's because each one of us, when we read about this, see the potential that there is a Mr. Hyde down inside of us that wants to come out, that wants to do things that are not good, and we feel that struggle. This idea of a habitual indulgence is a dangerous thing because the indulgence and the habit grows. Just like any addiction, a little bit at first has a big yield, a big boost, a big adrenaline surge. But then the second time, you need a little bit more, and the surge is a little less, and then a little more, and then a little less, until it's a full-blown habit, a full-blown addiction. And this is what happens to the good Dr. Jekyll in this story. It's a powerful thing. And this morning, I want to consider whether or not we are indulging sins, individual specific sins, instead of just kind of sin in general. And Jesus challenges this idea in a number of places, specific things that are much more subtle than um, what we might think. You know, on the outside, we want to do well, and things that people can figure out tend to, um, we tend to be able to hold those at bay a little bit. But Jesus says, you've heard you shall not murder, but I say don't even be angry. 
You've heard don't commit adultery, but I say don't even lust. He said, you've heard um, make your oaths, but I say don't take any oaths. Just let your words be true. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he starts to address some of the things that we deal with. Now, the problem is that these little habitual sins that we might have, these, let's say I entertain a thought of anger or hatred towards somebody. I think of it as a secret sin because I keep it in here maybe. But as I allow it to fester, it grows and it becomes more and more dangerous. It moves from an occasion to a habit to a full-blown addiction. And I was thinking about other things that kind of work like that. You know, I'm thinking of the well-intentioned but foolish lover of nature who is throwing some bread in the pond to the little baby alligator there that's, you know, 12 inches long. And after a couple years, this alligator gets bigger and bigger until it's actually dangerous enough that it kills the, the feeder. Or I thought of boa constrictors, you know, the snakes. My roommate in college had one in a glass cage in the basement in college. And, you know, it was fun to see that thing and feed it. It was only about three feet long. But then I went online to see if these things are actually, what actually happens. And I read last night, I read stories and stories and stories from police reports and 911 calls of what happens. It's almost always the same. The very hand that has fed this snake for so long will go to put some water in the bowl, and the snake, now nine feet, will bite the hand and start coiling around the arm. And in most cases, 911 gets there and, and pries that snake off before it kills the person, but sometimes it doesn't. And so the little harmless snake that was fun at first grows into something that is life-threatening, that is deadly, that is wicked. And the same is true for us when we harbor specific sins, little sins. Now, in this preaching series called Resurrection Life, what we're looking at is the fact that because Jesus is alive and has risen and gives new life to those who trust in Him, some things are very different for us. One this morning that I want to address is the idea that we don't have to hide in secrets anymore. We don't have to keep these things within us. We need to bring them before the Lord, and there is a new life that will grow. It's very different for us to be prone to sin than it is to be living in sin. See the difference? To be prone to sin, have a propensity towards, or at times we stumble and fall or are tempted, it's very different than to just kind of compartmentalize our lives like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and go, my evil stuff is over here and that's a bad thing, and not bring it over here. But rather, we are a whole person. We are not two personalities. We are a whole person. And so what God is calling in this text today from John, from 1 John, is for us to bring these things out into the light and let them be dealt with and practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. So if you'll turn with me, I want to look at 1 John 3 in this passage from the epistle. What we're doing in this Easter season is I've taken the scriptures that are prescribed in the lectionary, and I noticed a pattern that every one of them had to do with resurrection life, had to do with something about the fact that Jesus is alive and what it means for those who follow him. And so last week, we looked at scarcity versus abundance, and Dan preached to us about the death to scarcity and living in the abundance of God and generosity because we know him who has all things. Today, I want to look at no more secrets, resurrection life, no more secrets, and choosing to live in righteousness and in holiness. And in this letter, the Apostle John, now elderly, is writing to the churches in modern-day Turkey 2,000 years ago, particularly the church in Ephesus, where he pastored for a number of years. And he's writing to the people there to encourage them. Now, he says some things in here that could be confusing. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It says this. He writes, no one who abides in him, meaning in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Now, you could read that to think 
he's saying you could be perfect in this life, that, that sin is no more, that no, there's no more sin, you've become perfected in this life. But see, we know he's not saying that because if you flipped all the way back to the first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we have this problem. We've got a sin, that, sin nature that resides in us, but then we have a call to not continue sinning. Now, I need to pause here and address two groups in this room. There are two types of consciences in this room. There are some who are so in touch with their Mr. Hyde that the minute that some of this comes up, you are overwhelmed with despair. When you hear John say that we have sin, it's just more weight on you, and you need to hear the word of grace and forgiveness. There are others, though, who when you hear the word of grace and forgiveness, you go, I'm just a sinner. I'm a miserable sinner. I'm not even going to try. I give up. I'm just going to indulge it because I can't get away from it. And what you do is you deny the fact that because Christ is alive, He has broken the power of sin in your life and has empowered you to begin to live for Him. And so you become a grace junkie. Now, I'll pause for a second and have you ask yourself, which tendency do I go towards? Am I going more towards despair? I'm a miserable sinner and can't ever do anything good. Or do I tend towards being a grace junkie? And I will just say, eh, why even try? Because in this passage, John walks down a, a, a sharp precipice. On either side is a danger. And he's walking the middle line here in this passage. And it's a very powerful passage. Now, if I come to you and I say, hey, listen, stop sinning. Don't sin anymore. That's not very helpful pastoral advice. That's not helpful discipleship, because all it does is it calls attention to the sin. You start thinking about what you're doing, and now you're focused on the sin. That's just not very good advice. I love the Bob Newhart sketch that's on YouTube. Punch in Bob Newhart, stop it, and watch this thing. He's, he is a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and a client comes in to see him, and she's got a fear of being buried alive in a box, and he he talks to her about how it works, and he says it's five minutes, or five dollars for the first five minutes, and, and she gets out a pen to take notes, and, and he, he says, all right, you ready? Write this down. Stop it. And he just says really loud, stop it. And she says, what, like, just stop being afraid of being buried in a box? Yes, stop it. That's his advice. And it's really funny because you know how much it won't work, right? If I just tell you quit sinning, that's just not going to be helpful to you. And so John doesn't do that. He does something else. It's far better to say, instead of stop sinning, say, start living according to who you are. Be true to who Christ is making you. That is far better advice. You are above that. Don't live down there. Live up here where Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free to live for righteousness. So look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Here's, here's how he starts into this section. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, usually I really like the ESV's translation, which is a fair translation, but I think it, it undersells a little bit the power of what he says. And the NIV, I think, does a really a, a better job of bringing forth the emphasis in John's words. Consider how great the love he has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He's lavished his love upon us. 
Consider the magnitude of this, how great this is. You were just mere creatures, fallen creatures, and now because of what Christ has done and your belief in Him, He has adopted you as sons and daughters. You belong to Him. And like any child, you are growing up into the nature of your parent. In this case, your spiritual parent. We are becoming like God. He is making that happen in our lives. He has set us free to live for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So John admits right here, we don't, none of us, apostles as well, don't know exactly what it's going to look like in the great resurrection when everyone is resurrected. As it stands right now, only one man has ever died and been resurrected. Some have been resuscitated like Lazarus, but then they died again. But only one man has truly been resurrected, and that's Christ. And what John says is, we are children, and we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. But we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But then he goes on and he says this, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So Jesus, we know, was without sin and is without sin. And we know we are going to be made like him because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. So what John is saying is, start practicing righteousness, practicing living in purity, and preparing yourself for what is your eventual end, the goal, the means and the goal, the, the target. You are going to become pure like him. Now, it's an amazing thing. He also has already told us that our sins are forgiven. So we're, we're righteous in the sense of our standing before God, but our actions are still not yet perfectly righteous. So that's the tension that Christians deal with. And there's an incredible promise here of what we will become. But he says um, in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. Now, the Apostle Paul uses that word lawlessness to speak of the man of lawlessness who is going to come and represent the other rival kingdom, the one that is at work in this world. And Jesus' kingdom is breaking in and eventually will completely take over. But to practice lawlessness is to like start, it's to, it's to start working for the wrong side, the losing team that you know is not going to prosper. I like how he puts the word practice in here because it speaks of habit, habitual behavior, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So now we're making a distinction between sin in general and specific sins. Sinning, actions that are, or thoughts, thoughts, words, or actions that are specific, unique, not just a general nature, but an action. And I think if you're someone who is aware that in Christ you've been made new and His life lives in you, you don't want to live in those things anymore. You want to have His power break them for you. You want to be set free. But you, you understand the addiction to sin, specific ones. My favorite professor in seminary went on a retreat and it was a very intensive retreat, and they had spiritual direction, and they had these monks there who were really good at basically speaking to the, the human condition and the souls of the retreat uh, attendees. And Dr. Whitaker came back, and he said, after meeting with my spiritual director over this weekend, he helped me identify 27 addictions to sin that I have, specific ones. And he mentioned only one for us. He said he knows he has an addiction to sugar. It was a dietary thing. It was just an overindulgence in eating things he shouldn't eat. 27 specific sins. And then the question becomes, how do you begin to get free? What does it look like to start living in a way that 
is living, practicing righteousness instead of practicing lawlessness and sin. Now, I have here something that I think is very powerful, and a couple of you might recognize this. This is the little book of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a thoroughly Christian idea. How this whole thing works is really powerful. And I want to read to you just the first five of the 12 steps, and then I also want to read to you the promises that come with those. Because I think if you replace the word alcohol here and put my sin, meaning my specific sin, all of this totally applies. The first five steps say this. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore our sanity. Three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. No more secrets. We searched as deep as we could, and it was thorough. And then we admitted to God, number five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So none of this generalizing of sin, it was exacting and specific. We know where we were falling down. We know what we were addicted to. And then listen to these promises, which are totally the same promises for the Christian. The man or woman who decides, I am addicted to sin, I'm broken and I need help, and comes to God and walks through those steps. Listen to these promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. That's redemption. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scales we have gone, we will see our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then it says, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Those are big promises, and they're what the Scriptures teach us. And so the invitation here is because Jesus is alive, we don't have to hide in secrets. We can have the life that he has. We bring those things before him, and we ask him, how do we begin to practice righteousness in this specific area in my life? And what John says is, you're already forgiven. Now live as a child of God in his power. That's your identity. Begin to practice righteousness. Do the things that Christ does. He has set you free for this life. And it's an amazing life with really big promises. Now, I want to bow my head and invite the Holy Spirit to come and empower us to live that way. Would you please join me in that? Spirit of God, I lift up to you this entire room, and I ask that you would fall upon all of us with your power. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you have set us free. I pray now for those specific things that you would convict in each one of our consciences. Give us a vision, Lord, for what it looks like to be a child of God in that situation. Give us a vision of the future, the eternal future that we have, because Christ is alive. 
I pray this in his holy name. Amen.